Hello, everyone. I am Keisha Taylor Wesseling for a correction today. And in this episode, we are discussing the influence of Native American principles on America with a really special guest, Professor Donald A. Grind Jr. Professor Grind's research and teaching have focused on all Donosoni and Iroquois history, U.S. Indian policy since 1871, Native American thought, and environmental history. A member of the Yamasee Nation, he has written extensively on these topics, including authoring or co-authoring books such as the Encyclopedia of Native American Biography and Exemplar of Liberty, Native America and the Evolution of Democracy. The latter is available as an e-book online at radical.org. Information will be in the bio, among many other works. His, his work on environmental issues has also included studying the 16th and 17th century ecological history of a portion of the Susquehanna River and the National Science Foundation-funded graduate student training program for which he was co-principal investigator focused on solving environmental problems in Western New York. He is currently a professor in the Department of Africana and American Studies at the University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences. I am so very happy to have you on the show, Professor Grind. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to, great to be here. <laughs> Thank you. So to start off, the U.S. Congress recognized the influence that Native American forms of democracy have had on American democratic forms of governance. You've done so much research on this um, and groundbreaking research. Um, and you've explained that there were no existing forms of democratic governance in Europe they could learn from at the time. Can you tell us a bit about how they, this actually eventually came to inform the US political system? Yes, well, uh, I was one of the ones that testified before Congress that created the uh, resolution by the Senate that recognized the uh, Constitution as being partly derived from Native American ideas. So I was invited to do that. The Dinoshone, or you probably know them better as Iroquois, people of the Longhouse, uh, as they are called. The uh, primary direct influences on the development of American government, specifically uh, and, and as it evolved and finally the Constitution, there are three primary uh, direct influences. Uh, the first is separation of powers. The American government is the first government uh, that uh, sets up a system of uh, executive, judicial, and legislative branches that have uh, distinct and separate powers. Uh, the second influence is that sovereignty is vested in the people. See, uh, mm -hmm. in England, sovereignty is vested in the monarchy still to this day, technically. Uh, and that is God given to the royal family. And then 
they turn around and delegate some government to parliament. But the first three words of the U.S. Constitution are we the people. Uh-huh. That is a direct uh, influence uh, from uh, Native American governments like the Iroquois. And finally, and importantly too, is the notion of federalism, that Mm -hmm. you can have uh, different states. Originally, it was the 13 original states, uh, and uh, they have uh, uh, legal rights and duties, uh, the federal government uh, headquartered in Washington, D.C. Uh, has certain uh, duties and uh, powers. Uh, and then, uh, of course, local governments as well. And uh, this is very much like the Iroquois, uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, the Confederacy of the Six Nations meets in Onondaga. Its powers are diplomacy, war and peace, and things like that. Then each tribe, Tuscarora, Seneca, so on, of the Iroquois Confederacy has its own uh, chiefs and uh, clan mothers and so on. Uh, and they take care of land issues and so on. And then each village uh, or town has its own uh, powers as well. Uh, Marriage and divorce, child custody, you know, things like that. And Mm. the notion is that these uh, uh, branches of government or uh, sections of government have uh, the best knowledge to do those kinds of things. Mm. So um, those are the important uh, kinds of things. Uh, Also, I should point out that American government uh, uh, was not a direct copy of the Iroquois. Uh, and it took time for many of the other principles of Iroquois government to evolve over time into the American government. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those, of course, is to eliminate slavery, and that took the Civil War, see. And then finally, in 1920, women get the right to vote uh, in the, the U.S. government. And Um, women always had rights in the Haudenosaunee government. Uh, They can elect, they they elect the peace chiefs who conduct diplomacy and who go to the um, confederacy meetings and so on. Uh, And they have a variety of other kinds of things like regulating agriculture and so on. Uh, so uh, the power of women is an important part of Iroquois government and uh, is important. And then 
Lastly, in the end of the 20th century, finally, uh, the US government starts giving rights to the environment. And uh, that has always been an important part of the Iroquois government. Uh, and the US government is uh, developed in the last 50 years environmental protection stuff and things like that. Uh, I can give you some of the quotes from the historical records that proves this. Mm -hmm. John Adams, in his defense of the constitutions of the United States of America, which is literally the handbook, Adams was commissioned to write this before the Constitutional Convention. And as members were going into the uh, convention, they were given this handbook. Uh, and uh, it states that, quote, uh, it would be productive to conduct an investigation of the form of governments of the Indians, since the League of the Iroquois was the best example of governmental separation of powers, mm -hmm. marked with a precision that excludes all um, controversy. Uh, since the three powers of government were strong in every tribe. So this appears in the handbook, see. Uh, mm -hmm. What Adams was told a year or so before the Constitutional Convention, he's from Boston, and Harvard University at the time had the best library. So he went there and kind of summarized world government and uh, he included the analyses of uh, Native American governments. And this has always been a part of, of these things. Uh, in the 1680s, when William Penn, a Quaker from England, is founding Pennsylvania, before he comes to Pennsylvania, he writes a letter to the Iroquois chiefs and says that he as a Quaker is big on peace and uh, he knows that the, the uh, League of the Iroquois uh, is big on peace and so he wants to talk to them and uh, he wants to set up uh, some ideas similar in Pennsylvania. So it's a continuous process uh, in terms of sovereignty in the people, John Adams points out in his defense, again, that's the handbook, that American Indian governments were so democratic, quote, that the real sovereignty resided in the body of the people. Mm -hmm. so, and this is also another uh, way in which uh, a big part of American government is the separation of church and state, see. Uh, and um, that's uh, part of the sovereignty in the people that uh, power doesn't reside in God and the monarchy, it resides in the will of the, of the people. And then mm -hmm. finally, the, the uh, uh, federalism, uh, David Ramsey, who's the president of the Articles of Confederation, 
on May the 2nd, 1786, he heard corn planter Seneca, a Seneca speech to the Articles of Confederation. This is a year before the Constitutional Convention, and as it was called, uh, the uh, Articles of Confederation invited Chief Corn Planter to come and talk about Iroquois government, which he does uh, on May the 2nd, 1786. Uh, and uh, Ramsey writes uh, that uh, uh, the kinship federal state, uh, the Iroquois, uh, he says, quote, when 13 persons constitute a family, each should forego everything that is injurious to the other 12. When hmm. several families constitute a parish or a county, each may adopt what regulations it pleases with regard to domestic affairs, but must be abridged of that liberty in other cases where the good of the whole is concerned. When several parishes, counties, or districts form a state, the separate interests of each must yield to the collective interests of the whole. When several states continue combine in one government, the same principles must be observed. These relinquishments of natural rights are not real sacrifices. Each person, county or state gains more than it loses, for it only gives up the right of injuring others and obtains in return aid and strength to secure itself in the peaceful enjoyment of all remaining rights. And uh, this is a quote from Ramsey, uh, who uh, is, uh, it's called an address to the Freeman of South Carolina on the federal constitution in 1788, while it is being ratified. Mm -hmm. So uh, briefly, I've tried to kind of uh, give you the three major principles that are there and are direct influences, and then quote uh, the key players and members of the Constitutional Convention and so on uh, that attribute that to the uh, Iroquois people. Do you think that uh, this democratic form of governance went beyond um, the U.S. to Europe as well? Well, uh, there's a direct impact on the French. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing I wanted to tell you is that in uh, 1786, when the Constitutional Convention is being called, three Virginians who are members of the House of Burgesses, that's in Richmond, Virginia, they meet and uh, they pledge uh, to go to visit the Iroquois uh, before the Constitutional Convention. Those three Virginians are Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe. Uh, Madison, uh, of course, goes to the Constitutional Convention, and all three of them wind up being early presidents of the United States. Uh, Madison, uh, uh, and, and then Monroe goes as well to visit the Iroquois, and then they 
and then Jefferson can't go because he's made the uh, ambassador to France, uh, but he corresponds with them about their trip to visit the uh, uh, the Iroquois. Mm. And Madison goes with the Marquis de Lafayette. Uh, and um, then when uh, Franklin goes to uh, Paris, uh, in the newspapers, they're saying that he's bringing with him Iroquois chiefs. Okay. Uh, they will instruct the people on those things. Uh, also, Voltaire writes in 1776, he writes an article called The Huron. And it's about a, supposedly about a Huron who comes to visit France. And uh, the Huron tours France and he asks questions like, uh, why are somebody, some people going hungry here? In my uh -huh. society, as long as there is enough food, it's shared so that everyone eats. And then he says, and why is some people live in bigger houses and dress uh, better and so on than others? See, and uh, so this is a critique of French society on the eve of the, uh, uh, the French Revolution. Uh, and the French had studied the Iroquois for a long time. Okay. The Jesuit relations uh, are 150 years old. Uh, they uh, start out when the Jesuits go into Quebec. Uh, and uh, that's, I think, the 1690s or something. And then, see, these Jesuit priests, Jesuits chose their priests from peasant boys that were bright. And so these priests are, have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers that are peasants back in France. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, the Jesuit letters back, which are read in church, uh, uh, are very interesting to the French. Uh, because it's not just a typical uh, religious conversion propaganda. These are heathens, send money. <laughs> but the Jesuit boys that became priests knew that their brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and so on would be interested because they would say things like, in this, uh, in this society, there are no kings. Uh, everyone is equal, and every, no one starves, and everything is shared. And so uh, the French became enamored, and that is why, uh, you know, a big part of the French Revolution is uh, impacted by these uh, letters that go back a hundred years or more before the French Revolution. Mm. <laughs> Really, really interesting, really uh, fascinating. Um, and, and even uh, uh, Montesquieu talks about the Iroquois, mm -hmm. uh, as well as does John Locke in England and so on. 
but part of this too is it's selective. Much of this is not about women's rights. <laughs> Madison uh, uh, said, yeah, they're good things in the Iroquois government, but basically he says it's a government of skirts, which is his recognition of the power of women in Iroquois government, that it's a government of skirts. And okay. he doesn't want American government to be a government of skirts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, as you talk, I'm thinking to myself, this is so interesting because it's, it, it's informed by it, but it's so selective. And it seems that it's a democracy, but a democracy for people who are, that's aim, whose principal aim is to support people who already have power. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the first voters <laughs> are the voters that pay taxes. Yeah. You pay taxes, you don't vote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, many people uh, don't realize, but for almost 100 years, voting was uh, not by secret ballot. Mm -hmm. See, here on the East Coast, you have county courthouses and in front of every county courthouse is a courthouse lawn. So on election day, uh, male, white males would come to the county seat and there would be a picket fence down the middle. Mm. And then the uh, county clerk would get up and say, okay, so if you're going to vote for this guy for president, get on the right side of the fence. If you're going to go vote for this guy for president, get on the left side of the fence. And then they would count the numbers. And that's mm -hmm. where you get in America some of the slang about politicians and voters sitting on the fence. <laughs> okay. Literally where that uh, word comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Um, also, of course, the bankers and powerful people were sitting around watching how people voted, see? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the voters knew that. So that's why there was a big push uh, a couple of generations in for the, the secret ballot. Um, so, um, you know, part of this too, see, is the power of women uh, and uh, I get angry sometimes when I hear terminology like tribalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, because in tribal societies, not just in the Americas, but before Christianity in Europe, women had power. Mm -hmm. They had power over their bodies everywhere in the world there are herbs that are the equivalent of morning after pills. Mm -hmm. see? Uh, that's, what, that's how when you see in Europe witches and they're standing in the kettle stirring, you know, with the funny <laughs> hats on and stuff. Mm -hmm. Those are those women that uh, they not only gave the morning after pill to people, but also you know, other herbal medicines that worked, but the patriarchal Christian uh, oligarchy uh, did not want women to have control over their bodies, you know. 
Hmm. Where I come from, the morning after pill is the Southern Holly. Uh, the herbalist would uh, toast the holly leaves and then brew it into something like a cup of coffee and then women would take it the morning after and uh, that would work to uh, control their pregnancies and so on. And Thomas Jefferson in his notes on Virginia, when he's talking about uh, Native Americans, he talks about, he says that Native women rarely have more or more than two or three children because of noxious weeds, as he called them. <laughs> That's <laughs> that, that's that's you know that's part of it, and then see mm-hmm. that survives even in Europe mm-hmm. when English women came to the Americas, they brought Queen Anne's lace with them. Uh, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's uh, kind of like a weed. But Queen Anne's lace in England, uh, even after the witches are had denounced is the morning after pill, the tea made from Queen Anne's lace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, this is an important thing. And in in the Americas, uh, women had all of that and had rights and, you know, like, and, and as Jefferson says, rarely had more than two or three children, you know. How much of this is just not really discussed, taught, or anything. It's, it's not just about the United States, uh, it's about the world. It mm-hmm. was. And that patriarchal religions, uh, many that Christianity is not the only patriarchal religion, but they take over a couple of thousand years ago. And then, you know, you get these controls over women's bodies and uh, over women and uh, that's uh, that's a change and that harms democracy in the eyes of us native people you know also sexual violence is not a big thing in most tribal societies and in North America that's true as well the reason for that primarily is a virginity is not promised and b it's the women that ask the guys out. <laughs> and grandma tells young girls, you know, well, you ask a guy out, uh, he's a guy, and, you know, you go out with him two or three times and nothing happens, so he, probably, he might just say no. <laughs> <laughs> but see, with, uh, with morning after pills, it's not a problem. See? Mm-hmm. Mm. And many people call this matriarchal, and I, I really don't like that because it's the flip side of patriarchal. What I call it is matrifocal, that mm. women have these rights, but like divorce, men can leave their wife or the wife can leave them, see? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also when a man leaves his wife, uh, she ha- she stays with, since it's matrifocal, she stays with her sisters and her clan, and she still has daycare and a job and a roof over her head. 
She just doesn't have somebody to sleep with her every night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting. I mean, I, I'm thinking in America, you have, you know, as you, you explain in three main ways that the, you know, the crafting of this, these democratic, um, democratic principles in America today is informed by this, but at the time there's like African-Americans and it's also not even really being, you know, yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> impacting Native American people who influence them as well. Why I talked about, you know, no slavery. There's no slavery in, uh, in Native American societies. It's, uh, if you come here uh, and you want to stay, um, you uh, probably hook up with someone and that's it. You then become a member of that society and you're judged by, you know, how much you contribute to society and how good a husband, father, mother, wife, whatever you want to be called, et cetera, you are. And that mm -hmm. was it, you know, uh, and uh, that's... Uh, how it worked, see, uh, and uh, so you know the, the, that's that's the difference. That's one of the reasons why I say at the founding fathers they put in slavery, but the Iroquois didn't have that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are when 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 Madison went to visit the Iroquois, uh, he is given. In Albany, New York, he is given a, a man and a woman to get, guide them to the council, which is outside of Syracuse, where the Onondaga Nation is, and that's where the Iroquois Confederacy is. And after a couple of days, uh, the guy who's guiding them hands the his horses uh bridle to the Marquis de Lafayette and then perfect French says here's your uh, here's your horse uh -huh. Marquis de Lafayette is taken back and the guy tells him that uh, he's a peasant boy from Quebec and he was taken prisoner in war uh, and um, then uh, he was given a choice either be executed or married. And he said, being 16, I chose the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, and now I'm um, a father and a grandfather, and I have much more power than I would if I went back to be a peasant boy in, in France. You know? mm -hmm. So then they keep going along, and they look at the woman, and, well, maybe she doesn't look that Indian. And so they start talking to her in French and, and she just kind of shakes her head. And then after about a day of that, she says in English to them that uh, I am a, a, an Irish girl and I came from Ireland at the, about the age of seven or eight to work in a manor house on the Hudson. Mm. And I worked in the kitchen. Uh, so I was about 13 or 14. And I knew that when you got to be 13 or 14, the head of the household or head of the manor 
started looking at 13 or 14 year old girls. I'll let you think what he, what's going on. And she said, I decided to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she said that Iroquois people had come and visited them quite frequently. So she just uh, got out of the house at night and walked at night along the road west. And after several nights, then she came into Indian country. And so she started walking during the daytime and she met some Iroquois women picking blueberries. And um, she went up to them and they welcomed her in. And she says, now I am a mother. I can marry and divorce and I have assets and uh, I have much more than I would ever have as being a servant girl in that mannerings. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that uh, Madison, uh, you know, saw all of that uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, that's an important part of uh, of knowledge that they gain how things work. Mm-hmm. In terms of the federal aspect, federalism, how helpful do you think that has been um, in the American political structure and in terms of how it's governed and what well, do you think hasn't worked very well? Well, see, uh, federalism, see, in, uh, in Europe, uh, most people don't realize it, but England's the size of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So building a government across, across what the founding fathers called a, a vast geographic expanse, which is literally from New Hampshire down to Georgia and places in between, um, no Europeans had done that. The only thing they had done was create empires, which then subjected people, see. And so federalism was a way of uniting all of these uh, states, but not subjecting them, see, mm-hmm. keeping power locally and, and, you know, so on, see. And so that's a big, important part uh, for the founding fathers is how do we unite from New Hampshire to Georgia, see. And it's not just the vast geographic expanse. It's there's Puritans in New England, there's Quakers in Pennsylvania, there's Catholics in Maryland, and Church of England in the South. And uh, you know how do you uh, unite all of those people as well? I just wondered if there's anything you think that hasn't worked well today in today's context. In terms of this structure. Uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, the, the whole notion of the Senate, see, is that uh, part of the political deal was to give, even though you're very little like New Hampshire or Rhode Island, that in one legislative body, you're equal to the other states. See, that's where they created the Senate. And now that's not working well, see. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Okay. So that's that's part of the part of the problem uh, that is involved there. Also, of course, uh, the Civil War that some states 
wanted slavery and others did not, and they could not settle that issue uh, through debate and discussion and so on. And a lot of people don't realize that the United States is unique in eliminating slavery through war. Uh, that Mexico just passed a law, so did Brazil and many other Latin American states. And you know how that law worked, most of them? Uh. It's called the free womb, that after such a date, all children born, regardless of their race, are free. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a compromise for the slave owners, obviously. <laughs> but it also, of course, uh, made the transition uh, uh, to freedom over time and uh, did not contribute to violence in those societies over that issue. I'm not saying that's perfect, but it's what everybody else does. And one of, the re- one of the things that really gets me about this is how unique slavery is and the war and elimination thereof uh, is to America. And all of it's, it's implicit in, in Americans' eyes that, well, this is what happened in Mexico. This is what happened in Brazil, but it, that's not what happened there. You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered, if you can tell us of any other, um, well, any like you know contributions of Native American social structures or science and technology that you think has particularly informed today's America. Well, I mean, one other thing that's that vexed me is they talk about Europe as being superior in science, and that's how after 1492 they go and take over the world. Mm-hmm. But that's in chemistry and physics. That's about making gunpowder. It's about shooting cannonballs and all these things about warfare. See? And actually, in the Americas, Native Americans are ahead in the biological sciences. Uh, you saw part of that with, to this day, there is no herb that works, you know, a medicine that works, uh, that uh, Native Americans did not know about. Mm -hmm. Also, two thirds of the crops in the world were uh, started here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tomatoes, there was no spaghetti sauce in Italy (laughs) in 1491. Mm Potatoes, see, Uh, potatoes, uh, and potatoes did away with famine in most parts of the world. Mm. Uh, Let me just give you a statistical example. Uh, If you plant an acre of wheat, on average, you get X number of calories with an acre of wheat. But you plant that same field in potatoes and you know how much you get in calories? Not more. Eight, eight X. Eight oh. times. 
So, and we so, eat a lot of potatoes everywhere. <laughs> yeah, see, so uh, I also say in 1491, there was no Irish potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of potatoes so, here too. So that, uh, see, this is, uh, this is life-changing. And also another thing, corn uh, is uh, one of the most adaptable uh, plants. It can be grown just short of the Arctic Circle, and it can be grown uh, at the equator. Mm -hmm. And you put corn in that wheat field, and you get 4x uh, in terms of, uh, of those things. Also, many squashes are Native American. And uh, a big thing amongst the Iroquois is corn, beans, and squash. You plant them together in mounds and the uh, corn grows up, the beans climb up the corn stalk and the squash grows around the bottom and it shades the, the uh, roots of the uh, beans and the, uh, and the corn. And that it's also been shown nutritionally Mm-hmm. That if you eat only corn, beans, and squash, that you get all the vitamins and minerals that you need. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the uh, and another thing in, in medicine, it's not just herbs. It's like you can find no place in uh, in the Americas where they're draining the bad blood out of you when you get sick. You know. And uh, that's how President Washington died. He, of course, had some of the best doctors of the time because he was one of the wealthiest men as well as the first president. But he literally died in part because they bled him. And you find there is no record of, uh, of that kind of medicine. Uh, part of that is, is the Native American contributors to philosophy. One Mm. of the big contributor contributing factors is pragmatism, which is, does it work? (laughs) (laughs) Seems like a good philosophy to me. uh, Oh, you uh, (laughs) drain people's blood. Does it work? Anybody get (laughs) cured or whatever? (laughs) And then the same thing about herbs, Uh, women. Oh, if, if I take this the morning after, I won't get pregnant. Uh, does it work? Well, grandma says it does, right? <laughs> so use it. See, and uh, same thing with uh, like they boiled willow bark mm-hmm. or headaches and fever. And then they did a chemical analysis uh, of what's in the willow bark. And you know what that is? It's acetylsalicylic acid, which is aspirin. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, so these uh, witches stirring the brew, <laughs> <laughs> tribal tribal women, tribal medicine women, or herbalists, if you call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and see, and it's not just, as I, I tried to say, it's not just in here, in, in here, but before Christianity, the, the same thing was going on in Europe, too. Mm-hmm. And to mention in other parts of the world as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. So, 
Um, that was really interesting. And I, I just wonder, how do you think these types of, uh, you know, technologies, science technologies, can be used in a way that respects instead of, rather than exploits Native American culture? Because um, I, I would think a, a lot of it is used and we don't even know it's used or it's not recognized or anything like that. I wonder if you could speak to that a bit. Well, yeah, well, environmentalism is an important mm -hmm. part of Native American society. And environmentalism is crucial for the power of women because mm -hmm. of Mother Earth. See. Uh, and women do the farming in most Native American societies because they relate to the Earth. See, they're feminine and the Earth is feminine. Uh, and let me, let me just say that, but there's also things that has to be balanced. So uh, a woman who has a planting stick, that's uh, when you go out and you plant corn, beans, and squash, you have a hole and you hoe up and loosen the dirt. And then you have a planting stick that juts into, that you stick into the ground and then you throw the seeds in there and cover it up. And the women all over, uh, it was good luck and you had to have a man make the planting stick. Why? Well, it's phallic. <laughs> See, and that's the, the symbol is that um, women need that phallic planting stick, and that's the necessary thing for fertility. It's also not just Mother Earth. They tend to forget there's the spirit in the sky, and that's masculine. Uh, and uh, in my society, we're taught that a thunderstorm is literally the spirit in the sky and Mother Earth having sex. And mm. the rain is semen, and it comes down and fertilizes uh, and... Uh, that's how you get fertility, see. Wow. And that we're taught we are but smaller versions of the bigger versions of reality, see. Uh, the um, Wallapais, uh, the Wallapai Reservation, Indian Reservation, is the floor of the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. And uh, they believe that the Grand Canyon is Mother Earth's vagina. Okay. And uh, then you go further north into Wyoming and uh, the French came in and asked, there are these big mountains, Rocky Mountains in Wyoming. And they asked them, well, you know, what do you call those mountains? The, the people they were talking to, those are our mother's breasts. Uh, and so the French beautifully wrote down Grand Tetons. Mm -hmm. I want to imagine what Grand Tetons means in French. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They also said that the snow on the mountains is literally her milk. And in the spring, the milk melts and flows down and nourishes the earth you know mm -hmm. 
So there are all these stories that connect you directly to the environment, see, and, uh, and also see that thing about Native women rarely have more than two or three kids. It's, it's not just about spacing them and, you know, I got other things to do and so on, but uh, often if there is a famine, then Native women will, you know, there's not enough for all the mouths to feed, so we just don't have any kids or wait to have until the environment gets back better again. See, and that's why in North and South America, unlike in Europe, you do not have famines, plagues, and overpopulation. Because mm -hmm. uh, women are looking out the windows. There are enough out there to <laughs> to feed us, you know. Um, you you worked on that uh, project, solving environmental problems in Western New York. I wondered, does any of how did any of your research contribute to um, this training program that you worked on? Well, I uh, I wrote Ecocide of Native America, one of mm -hmm. my books, and it deals with how the dominant society uh, destroyed lands. Uh, and uh, I talk about up in Northern New York where the Mohawk Reservation is. Just upriver from the Mohawk Reservation is a big chemical plant and it had PCBs there and back about 40 or 50 years ago, uh, because the chemicals had been leaching onto the Mohawk Reservation and the Mohawks all had wells on their reservation where their houses were. And Mohawk women were told that the PCBs stay in the fat of human beings. And so Mohawk women were advised it's so their water is so polluted they cannot nurse their babies. Mm -hmm. And that was just a big shock, not just for Mohawk women, but for all native people. You know, this is the, that foundational <laughs> nurturing thing and you're telling women they can't do mm -hmm. that. You know, and that this mm. is not just disrupting the environment, it's disrupting human behavior and mm -hmm. the basics of life and reproduction, see? And then similar things happen out in the Dakotas. The funny thing, upriver from the Dakota reservations, they dumped uh, uh, radioactive materials, see? And that caused real problems. And uh, so, you know, and all over the, the West, uh, the places where the most environmental damage is often adjacent to reservations, you know, mm -hmm. or on reservations, actually, too. So um, that's an important part of, of uh, you know, that that you, um, part of that is, is also the perception of reality uh, because uh, we as native people, we think of 
most of the earth is alive. That Mother Earth, you know, the mountains are her breasts, uh, and the rivers and creeks are her veins, uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, you know, in Western science, the only thing that's alive is animals and vegetables, and everything else is dead. So don't worry about the dead stuff. <laughs> mm. It's so beautifully um, poetic the stories and I love how it interrelates with the science um, in a seamless way. So there's no distinction between either. Yeah, well, uh, our, our thing as Native people, when we, we criticize Western science as white people think too much. Mm-hmm. Don't feel. And, uh, you know, that women, you know, like I say, look out the window and they can feel whether or not there's enough out there to feed everybody, feed all the mouths and, you know, and, and those kinds of things. And men the same way with buffalo herds and, um, and deer herds, you know, men managed wildlife, see. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one story here where uh, on the Great Plains, uh, a lot of white people are moving away in the Dakotas and they want to make a buffalo reserve there uh, that the farms will just be converted into this grassland. And, and part of that is to control erosion because uh, buffalo grass grows where buffalo are. Uh, buffalo grass uh, grows about three feet high and it has roots five or six inches deep into this hard soil. And the reason mm-hmm. why I can do that is buffalo are running around eating the grass, but since they're 3,000 pound animals on hooves, their hooves turn that soil so the buffalo grass can go down five or six inches. And that start that stops erosion. See, in the dust bowl that happens in the United States in the 1930s is because of the killing off of the buffalo and the disappearance of the buffalo grass and putting in wheat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so Indians said, well, you know, there that bring the buffalo back, it'll be good for the environment. And the white people said, and, uh, you know, we will take care of them. And the story is that uh, for thousands of years, the, uh, and the Lakota people, uh, they say we we help maintain the strength of the buffalo herds and how that works into science is that about one in 20 buffalo born or what they call square heads mm-hmm. genetic throwbacks if you let the square heads reproduce the first bad winter when it gets really cold half the buffalo herd will die but the Lakota people would kill the swearheads so that when there was a bad winter, maybe only 10 or 15% of the buffalo would die. Mm-hmm. So when they were talking about this buffalo commons thing, the white anthropologist, the, the white environmentalist said, yeah, well, we agree with you that we should put it back into buffalo, but we're going to move you off and make it into a pristine wilderness for buffalo." And the Lakota people said, no, they need us. 
and they explained it to them. And uh, finally, they're starting to move in that direction, see? Mm-hmm. But even the, the science, the white environmental science, see, is the buffalo should just roam around on their own and no, no people there and it make it pristine wilderness. And uh, Indians, no, no, they need us. <laughs> hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much. This has been enlightening, enriching uh, discussion. Um, so thank you so much for taking time to speak to me today. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I enjoy, uh, you know, speaking about these things. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, I think it's important uh, to point out that recently Rick Santorum, a former senator, uh, talked about how bad Indians were and that the white people, when they came, they brought culture and so on. And uh, part mm-hmm. of the whole visitation on the Iroquois and the development of American government was to refute him. He's since been fired from uh, CNN, uh, but the influence theory is widespread. Uh, my book, Exemplar of Liberty, mm-hmm. has sold 270,000 copies in the last 30 years. Mm. That's a university That's a press lot. book. Uh-huh. And if a university press book sells 5,000 copies, it's considered a runaway bestseller. Mm. That's how people find that interesting. And now, of course, and it's, uh, and throughout that time, it's been available on radical.org, you know, through the internet. Mm. And people often accuse me that this idea is part of the radical left and so on, you know, uh, but the influence theory is required in public schools and college curriculum in Utah, California, and Washington State. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tell my students, you know, oh, this is an ultra-liberal concept. <laughs> uh, you think Utah is an ultra-liberal state? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, That's it's, great. It's... Uh, um, it's important to understand, uh, you know, that uh, uh, this is uh, part of who we are, and uh, it, uh, you know, uh, I don't say that the U.S. Constitution is a copy of the Iroquois Constitution. Uh, sometimes people who claim that the US Constitution is a copy of the British Constitution. I asked them, well, then show me a copy of the British Constitution. <laughs> kind of look at me and that's a, uh, and uh, I say, you don't, have you ever seen the British Constitution? <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to tell them, I said, the British Constitution is the sum total of the acts of parliament since Magna Carta, that's been a thousand years. And uh, the notion of a written body of, uh, you know, Article One, Article Two, Section This and That, 
is um, you know something that's uh, important here to understand, uh, and so um, you know there's there's numerous other comments by founding fathers on you know linking it to the Native American kinds of things because part of the there was a a, a plan or some people in America at the time of the Constitutional Convention, they wanted to make George Washington king. Okay. Have some bishop come in and crown him king. And they said that way, you know, we can have God on our side. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, that was a minority opinion. And uh, they didn't go along with that, but there was controversy and debate, see, mm -hmm. issues. But one last statistic, uh, most people don't recognize that, what is the bloodiest war in American history? Most people say it's the Civil War. Uh, the Civil War, of course, is Americans killing Americans, but only one half of 1% of Americans died in the Civil War. The American Revolution, 1% of all Americans were killed by the British. So there's strong anti-British sentiment in the colonies mm -hmm. at the end of the war, see? And many loyalists are shipped off to Nova Scotia too. <laughs> mm. And uh, so uh, having a, a government that's like the British just isn't going to go anywhere. And the founding fathers knew that. They knew that, that this politically is not going not gonna to work for us, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, they don't want to be uh, subjugated. It's not anyone's subjects. But they don't mind somebody else being their subjects. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, like, you know, the Jefferson and all of them are slaveholders, so they, they compromised on things, see, and that, that's all part of the, uh, and that then those things have to be remedied over time, or some of them, see, like I said, uh, doing away with slavery, giving women the right to vote, and then the rights of the environment, these are finally mm -hmm. uh, catching up to Iroquois ideas. Yeah. What I should tell you is that my tribe is triracial. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, the Yamasees, we fought a war over slavery because uh, in the late 1600s and early 1700s, South Carolinians were coming in and selling pots and pans and powder and shot. Sometimes they say, we'll loan it to you and then they come back and you don't have any money, so we'll take your kids. And mm -hmm. that lasted for about 10 years and then the Yamasee War. And uh, that's the bloodiest war against white people in American history. Mm -hmm. We killed ten percent of the white people in South Carolina, mm. and uh, then we moved 
across the Savannah River into what in 1715 to what would become Georgia, but it would be 40 years before it would become Georgia. And if black people could make it across the Savannah River from South Carolina, they could join us. Mm -hmm. I'll let you imagine whether some of them did. <laughs> <laughs> I know about the Freedmans. Um, Pardon? In America. The Freedmans? In America, uh -huh. would, would those be also considered freedmen? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, also the Tuscarora War, they were enslaving Tuscaroras in North Carolina mm -hmm. the same way, and they fought the war, and then the Tuscaroras went north to New York because New York did not have slavery. That's how they got away with it. So, but in my, uh, there's a joke, Indians in the South, particularly from Maryland and Delaware south to Georgia, uh, they have wavy hair. <laughs> <laughs> I had an uncle who had wavy hair and an aunt who had wavy hair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and when, uh, when I was a child, um, my grandfather, who had a farm, outside of Savannah, uh, the Klan would be operating and all our relatives, because uh, some, you know, they recognized that uh, they were Indians, but they were black. So they, those people joined the black, but they stayed connected to us, you know, so when the clan would do that, they would come to us and mm -hmm. uh, stay. My father, my grandfather and all his brothers had this big farm, these farms along this road, which is a big U about 10 miles off the main highway. Mm -hmm. So then I remember as a kid, I think I was like nine or 10 and this guy from the Ku Klux Klan comes to my grandfather and says, you know, we want you to stop protecting the in people. <laughs> and um, my grandfather said to him, I tell you, you guys work at night. You come in and burn, burn crosses and do things. If you think you can uh, make it through this 10 mile you with me and my relatives at night, you can go ahead and try. Uh, and the clan never tried. <laughs> um, mm. So it was interesting to, um, you know, see uh, some of that. And, uh, the stories uh, and history is so very important. Yeah, well, when I was growing up, you know, I, I would grow, grow into the black section and visit my relatives and people would say, you yeah, you have relatives in the black sections? <laughs> well, they're really Indians, you know. We had a joke that, uh, you know, people that look more visibly black and people that look more visibly Indian or, or white, that, um, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the way the society uh, made us and, and told us is that 
for me, they would tell me, you're not really Indian. You're just, hi you're just hiding black blood. See? Really? Black people that, more visibly black people that said they were Indian, they said, you're not really Indian. You're just hiding white blood. <laughs> uh, white and black That's what constructs. They, <laughs> see, and, then, and, and so my black relatives or visibly black relatives, you're the only people that recognize that we're Indians, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. That was our connection, is that uh, we share this heritage and this attitude uh, and um, attitude towards the environment and attitudes towards Christianity and things like that, you know. Yeah. My friend who was a mentor, uh, he was um, uh, an Indian from Virginia, and that was his joke. You know, we all have wavy hair, he says. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you do the DNA test, you realize <laughs> we, yeah. all, we, we all have brothers and sisters in some way. Yeah.